Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. This is a bit of a special episode. We're breaking with the format just a little bit. Um, and that is because we love and want to talk about one Mike Flanagan. Hey. Uh, specifically his uh, most recent Netflix release, the seven-part limited series Midnight Mass. But we'll probably end up talking about most of his movies in some format uh, over the course of this. Uh, he's a perfect candidate for the month of October. He is, is by a lot of people's measure, and I think we'll kind of fall into this camp too. By a lot of people's measure, he is uh, one of the most exciting directors in, in sort of modern, I mean, we'll say horror. I don't know if I would want to say horror because horror has all these weird connotations now. I would say like thriller or horror thriller. You know, he's, he's, he's not you know, slasher guy necessarily. It's a little bit different, but um, we're going to talk about Flanagan and why uh, both you and I are excited by what he's got coming next down the pike. Uh, and then just a, a sort of storied and interesting career that he's already had so far. Um, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll kick it over to you because I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, but joining me as always is Catherine. My sister, and uh, she is probably one of the biggest Mike Flanagan <laughs> fans that I know. Um, you are are constantly just pinging me about Mike Flanagan stuff, and I love it. Because I like Oculus generally, when people did not like Oculus. When nobody knew what Oculus was, <laughs> that's right. I mean, uh, that was, was sort of my first introduction to him as well. Um, I, I still have yet to see Absentia, uh, his, his mm -hmm. I guess that was his Kickstarter film. Um, I, I know it was on Netflix for a long time. I, I never, you know, in, in that time frame, I wasn't, you know, following Flanagan or all that interested in it. So it's one that I need to watch. But uh, Oculus was really my first introduction to him as well, uh, which I came to it mostly because it had Amy Pond from <laughs> Doctor Who in it, right. uh, which she ended up being one of the weaker parts of the film, really. Uh, not not in a bad way, but just, you know, she's the Doctor Who girl. She was the Doctor Who girl at the time and and got me in the door, but it was more just the overall presentation and the idea behind Oculus that really sort of kept me going. Uh, all that crawling through glass at the end. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. very effective. Um, but yeah, so so I guess uh, much like uh, the podcast we both love, the King cast, what's your Flanagan origin story, Kate? Where did you first... Uh, coming to because this is now the Flanacast. That's what we're going to call it. It's just a, a weekly, uh, just constant positive. I could probably make Mike that Flanagan. happen. Um, we could do it for a couple weeks at least. So I, he was one of those directors that you know I saw his name on everything. See it on Oculus. I, I did watch Absentia. I would like to watch that one again. Um, <clears throat> and it was just a name that you know kind of stuck out as like oh he, he did he did this movie and this movie and i guess it was the Luigi origins of evil movie where i really mm -hmm. kind of stopped and looked up you know a wiki article about him. of course he did hush i mean i don't know it's one of those slow burn directors where i just ended up watching every movie that he made and even though not all of them were perfect or, or great i always right. came away from them having had a good time and they left a really yeah. good impression and then, you know, the turning point for everybody was when the, the haunting of Hill House happened. Um, right. That's really his explosion point. Yeah. It worked consistently up until that point. Not 
maybe not hyper successfully, not super visibly, but he had been working consistently making interesting projects for a while. But then his relationship with Netflix had matured um, because he's worked with them pretty much from the start. Well, that's the thing is all of his movies were just available on Netflix. And that was how I ended up becoming a fan was they were there and something to watch. And when you run out of all of the horror movies that you've heard of on Netflix, you start looking at what else is there to watch? And that was really, you know, where I, I first kind of found his work. I also really liked Hush. I know that one was a little bit later mm-hmm. um, than like Oculus. I guess, I mean, Oculus, I feel like that was the first one. And then I went back and watched Absentia. I mean, I, yeah. I guess that's where it started for me. Yeah, Oculus was a rental. I think I red boxed Oculus. That was when I was still red boxing movies. Because um, we, you know, we had, you know, tons of streaming well, really Netflix and like Hulu and maybe one other streaming thing that we were subscribed to at that point. Um, but uh, I would still routinely get movies out of the red box and Oculus was one of those, which I had heard just smatterings of, oh, this is this weird mirror movie. It's got demons. It's pretty cool. Um, and then, but really Flanagan's career has been dotted by, I, I'm going to say like approaching greatness, right? Like he he would do something and then sort of, go to this point and then something wrong would happen. So like he makes a student film, which was uh, what uh, he called it Oculus part three, the man with the plan or whatever. Right. Cause it was supposed to be like the last chapter of his Oculus film that gets made, gets him some attention, not studio attention, but he gets a Kickstarter funded where he makes absentia after that. That doesn't really get released, gets picked up by Netflix, who at that point, this is way before Netflix like exploded and they had billions of things. You know, they were constantly hounding people for content, especially horror content, which was something that they had always been kind of light on. And so he makes a deal for Absentia. He makes a deal later on for Oculus. Then, um, you know, his so he was like early in with the Netflix people. And, yeah. and making deals with them. And that has, has certainly paid off for him, uh, or at least seems to have paid off for him. So, you know, Oculus was my introduction as well. Really loved it. Uh, it was a sparse film. You know, it's a capsule movie for the most part. He got, you know, there's a few scenes of characters sort of outside the house, but it's really a haunted house movie. Um, very effectively done. I really liked his use of flashback and how he sort of worked those into the film. There was also... Uh, a little bit of of mental illness discussion because the character is obviously coming out of a mental uh, therapy or a, you know a therapy situation, so you don't really know if you can trust him. I just really like really, that oh, Oculus you know, was a, a it was a relationship interpersonal kind of film. You know, this brother sister. It's mm-hmm. about that them. Dynamic. It's not. It's not really about scares. It didn't feel like, oh, let's trap some strangers in a house and scare them. It's more about, no. you know, the the intimacy that these characters already have with each other. And that is that's kind of the crowning achievement of Mike Flanagan's horror, I think, is that it it focuses on interpersonal relationships more than anything. Right. And and that's one of the main things I want to talk about in terms of Midnight Mass is because I, I think a lot of people who might go into that film as unaware as I was of what it was about, the one thing that sort of you hold on to with pretty much any Mike Flanagan property is the, the sort of emotional development of its characters. Um, Cause Flanagan is one of the rare and I'll, I'll say rare horror directors that seems more concerned with developing his characters emotionally there. And as you said, their interpersonal relationships, he wants you to love them 
or hate them one or the other, but deeply, right? Not just in the sort of artificial, you know, sort of trapping ways that most horror does. Um, you know, a lot of horror films, they, they do the bare minimum to get you to love a character. Uh, I was listening to, uh, the King cast with, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis from uh, last week. And she was talking a lot about, you know, Laurie Strode in the first film. And, and one of the things that Carpenter and his, you know, his team did very well was to use all of the, the things that you know about teenagers to very quickly build a sympathetic character out of Lori. Right. Oh, she, you know, she gets caught smoking weed, uh, but she gets away with it. Uh, you know, she's she's kind of the responsible one amongst her friends. Like, you know, all of these things that now have become sort of not only final girl tropes, but just horror movie tropes. Right. So, you know, if I want to build a character that I want you to like, I'm going to do these things. And then you kind of know what we're in for. Right. But it's enough. Mike Flanagan goes beyond he is way more interested in like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to just understand this is a nice person and you should like them and you're going to feel bad when they die. It's, oh no, I want you to completely understand this person, their motivations, their desires, their wishes, their dreams. I think that's ultimately Uh, why television is probably the best place for his, his work. Um, but I do still like his movies a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the animal in the room here. Cause okay. So let's, let's just kind of walk through it. So he makes absentia, this nice little kickstarted film. He makes Oculus that gets him some attention. Then he goes on after Oculus and he makes uh before I wake, uh, which is a, a one of the early films of Jacob Tremblay. Was he the little kid in that one? Mm-hmm. Like before he exploded, I, I want to yeah. say, yeah. Um, that sounds right anyway. But, um, so this film about a, a little, uh, kid who's in the foster system or maybe he's an orphan i think he's an orphan and and you know some great horror scares i one of my my teaching jobs was at a small private school and someone as a as a treat okay like as a treat decided that a bunch of middle schoolers who had um i don't know they they did like some fundraising or something and they hit a goal they're like we're going to let them watch a movie and they showed them before i wake in the school library and i was like whose idea was this oh my god and it scared the little bejesus out of those kids it's it scared the jesus out of them is what it did um and sure was uh, not the intended effect no so that i mean that was like uh an interesting sort of perspective to view through you know a flanagan film but so he makes before I wake before I wake again, he's like right towing up against greatness. Cause I think a theatrical release for that, he probably would have done okay. But instead he got caught in the relativity media bankruptcy. Um, Cause that, you know, studio was going down and getting purchased. And, and basically again, it just got dumped onto Netflix. It wound up on Netflix. Um, and then, you know, he made hush after that with his, his then I guess new wife, Kate Siegel. Uh, that was actually the production where they met. Is that where they met? Okay, mm-hmm. so I knew their relationship sort of developed around that movie. I didn't Which know. I think you know, that's that's how it went. I don't know. I'm not like a celebrity follower. Um, okay, let me get out my my gossip columns here. <laughs> um, they are. I mean, that is that is kind of a an important collaboration point though, because his his career takes a significant turn for the best um, after they got together. Like, clearly, they do good work saying <laughs> yeah very much so she's awesome um 
so then he makes uh Gerald's game, which is where he really like now, that's where horror fans. Now I need to say some things about that movie. Sure. I did not believe that that movie could be adapted. I, didn't, I didn't believe that that could Nobody be a movie. Did. Yeah, I I read that book. Like, I mean, I am a I'm a big fan of Stephen King. Um, we've talked about it before. I read that book in an afternoon because it's just mm -hmm. like it is harrowing. Like you wouldn't want to stretch it out over a longer period than you have to. It's just a harrowing book to read. Um, and I was so sure that that was just going to be another take, you know, some some absolute skeleton of a Stephen King story and turn it into something completely different. No, it was a very faithful adaptation. You know, of um, wow. I mean, just spoilers, but there's there's just there's just some scenes in that movie that are so uncomfortable. I never thought I would see them on film. <laughs> yes, uh, and and that is where um a lot of people took notice of Flanagan because again, this was regarded as as one of several projects that had floated around Hollywood for years. Because Flanagan is one of the first to say that there was there were in development versions of this story before he was brought on board. Yeah. Um I, I was listening to a podcast with him as well. Um this was a while back, but and he said he lost his lead actress. The reason he went with Carla Gugino, she was not his original first choice uh to play that character. And but he lost her because the I don't remember if it was his agent or if it was the studio. I guess it would have been the studio. Uh, sent her the old script, not his script. Um, sent her the previous draft, the previous version by a different writer. And then when they met up to talk about the film, she was talking about a very different film. And once he clarified, she was so perturbed that she basically walked from the project. She was like, I don't want to do this anymore because I wanted to do the other script. And because Flanagan's was much closer, the other script had made significant changes to accommodate, uh, as many people would have expected. Well, and, quite frankly, so, it couldn't have worked out better because Carla Gugino was amazing. Yes, and and obviously their their working together on that film has established a a very positive working relationship because she's basically been in everything he's done since, um, and rightfully so because she is great. Um, so I mean, like, here's the thing, man. Okay, so like. Independent horror, Flanagan. That one Ouija movie that wasn't terrible, Flanagan. Actually, the do you remember Stephen King adaptations? Flanagan, right? Do you like, remember when I saw the Ouija movie and I I messaged you? I think I texted you and I was like, "Hey, the part where they hung the chick with the Christmas lights that was actually pretty cool looking. I mean, mm -hmm. not possible, but it was cool. Yeah. That was such. Yeah, it I was mean, a cool movie in a lot of ways." <laughs> especially after the first one was just such a generic one of those. Yeah. Like it's just, it just nothing uh, it's lighter than air. Like it's like escape room, right? Like, Oh, well that was a thing I watched, I guess. I mean, you it's know? not, I mean, it's, it's not, a it's perfect, not bad. It's but, not a but, perfect movie, but no but Gerald's game. I mean that, what a heck of a, an entry into adapting Stephen King stories to pick that one and then to do such a great job. Yes. To literally start with one of the most difficult and then apparently coming down the pike is, is Lissy's story, which I think is equally challenging. Uh, I don't know how involved Flanagan is in that one. I don't somebody think somebody else is. is tackling it, but, but I, I still but, am excited. 
But yeah, then he does Doctor Sleep. Well, no, they just did Lissy's story. They just did that as an Apple TV show, didn't they? Oh, I have no I think idea. They did. I think they did actually. Hmm. But he does the two TV shows, um, you know, not technically films. Uh, but then he did Doctor Sleep. That was his his other Stephen King adaptation. Right, and and that's really. I I had known of Flanagan. I really enjoyed Ouija. Uh, origin of evil the second one i i liked that one a lot um but it, dr sleep really blew me away just really really blew me away mostly because i i had really enjoyed the book for all of its flaws it's it's not a it's not one of stephen king's just brilliant novels it's not but i really enjoyed it i thought it was weird enough and a little bit out there, you know, I, I can't say that I, I needed to know what happened to Danny Torrance, but having Stephen King sort of put some closure on that character, um, well, not even really closure, at least in the novel, but, but to try and bring that character back and kind of, it's to me, Dr. Sleep is about the redemption of Jack Torrance. That's really what Stephen King is doing in that book is he is redeeming Jack Torrance through his son. Um, because, you know, and, we don't need to turn this into the King cast. There are other people who discuss this very, very well every week, but the shining is Stephen King as with most of his novels in the eighties, wrestling with his own addictions, his own flaws, his sure. own things that he's done wrong. And, and at the end of that movie, Jack Torrance, even though he's marginally redeemed, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think he hates the film version is because Jack Torrance gets no redemption at the end of that. Um, Dr. Sleep is about showing that even having someone who was that terrible in your life doesn't mean that you have to be as terrible. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's kind of beautiful in that way. Um, because a lot of what Stephen King is doing now as the sort of mature, calm, clear headed man that he is today or seems to be, um, is about sort of showing that transition and how successfully, how successful it can be. And, and so I think that, Flanagan's take on it, which is as dark as the, as the novel was, because the novel's still, it's pretty rough at times. A lot um, of kids die. There's, there's a lot of kid death. In you Dr. have Sleep, to just be sure. comfortable with that. And, and Flanagan's, that particular scene uh, in Dr. Sleep is, is incredibly difficult to watch. Uh, it's, it's rough uh, all the way down. Uh, and he doesn't really pull any punches, uh, but it's it's kind of the emotional center point of the film where where you sort of feel the stakes of it finally. Yeah. Um, but in any case, he's he's adapted these Stephen King works exceptionally well. In many ways, he's sort of almost immediately jumped up to like Frank Darabont level um, in, in terms of you know King adaptation winners, and and that's exciting because there aren't many people that take big swings at Stephen King and, and really pull it off. Um, obviously we've seen some, some success with it, uh, at least chapter one, uh, chapter two is, but you know, that's good, not a difficult story to make fun. Though. It's, it's a little bit more straightforward and you have clear ground that's been tread for you with it. Um, Cause as much as, as sort of shitty as the miniseries is, it was still a cultural touch point for millions of people. And, and you've seen that and you've got an adaptation of that story that you can build from, right? You can, you can add more gore, you can you know, do more stuff, but the basic thrust of that story has been adapted and adapted well. Um, 
you don't have to to sort of go back to the the drawing board if you don't want to. Um, so yeah, I mean, Stephen King is is you know there are other good adaptations out there, but Flanagan is seemingly intentionally picked two projects that most people said there's no way this could ever work, and then made them work, which is awesome. But in the middle of doing all that, he also has made these incredible uh, limited series television shows for Netflix, starting uh, with the house on uh, the haunting of Hill, the haunting of Hill House. Right. Sorry. Brain fart. Uh, the haunting of Hill House, which um, was so good that my wife, who hates horror films, like just. I mean, hate is hate's probably too strong. A word. She will watch a horror film, but all of the things that we've talked about in terms of like what typical horror does are the things that she is not interested in. Right. Like she's not there for the gore effects. She's not there to see a slasher kick down doors like malignant ain't happening. Right. <laughs> no chance. It's just too far out there. But haunting of Hill house because of Flanagan was built on characters and she fell in love with a couple of those characters and she wanted to see what happened to them. And, and that drove her through the horror elements, which she would typically avoid, um, which I, it says a lot, right? That's uh, that, that sort of establishes very clearly that Flanagan's appreciation for character is sort of verging back over into, you know, the dramatic side of things. And that even if you are not a horror fan, the drama of the series of what's happening may be enough to pull you through. Uh, which is very exciting, right? That's not something in a lot of, that you can say with a lot of horror films uh, or films that have any kind of scares. So um, Haunting of Hill House was uh, gorgeous. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, even at the time, I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, Bly Manor, I didn't love as much. Loved it. I, yeah. I, I, I but I mean, I'm kind of poised right to love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you've you've interacted with the the turn of the screw far more than I have. Um, you know, I've I've read it. It's I think it's a wonderful novel for that period, um, and I love how Flanagan adapted it. I, I think it's really good. The bright spot for me in that one is is Rahul Kohli, who uh-huh. uh, comes back in in Midnight Mass, also in another brilliant role. Um, like I said, and I don't say Bly Manor was not was not good. It opposite of that, but it was for me. It, didn't, it is. It didn't grab me as much. For me, it's Mike Flanagan's uh, rediscovery of Henry Thomas as an actor that just makes me infinitely happy. Yep, um, that's that's one of the other pieces here. All right, we've got uh, E.T. Uh, or or E.T. Boy. You wouldn't who, think that he would grow up to be an amazing actor. I mean, knowing what we know about child actors, mm-hmm. you're supposed to get hooked on some sort of designer drug and never yes. be heard from again, and right. then Just show disappear. up on a reality show to lose all the weight that you gained <laughs> after rehab. Right. But, but this does not, that's not the case. He is no. just an amazing actor and holy shit. He's in all of these limited series. All of them. And, and each performance is so different. Like, I mean, who he plays, I mean, he plays, you know, the father in, in, in Hill House. Um, and it's amazing. And then he plays, you know, the, the uncle in Fly Manor and it's amazing. And then Midnight Mass, I don't know. 
just another like knock it out of the park. I can't believe the ET guy is so incredible. But yeah, he is. Well, he is the I other don't know, one. man. If you go back and look up that uh, his audition tape with Spielberg, um, an amazing as child a kid, actor. amazing like that actor. that kid will bring you to tears in his freaking audition tape, like incredible depth and he of was emotion so that he was able to summon. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, yeah, I I don't I, you know a lot of this started with Gerald's game. Henry Thomas played uh, her dad in Gerald's game, right? Um, so like you know, a lot of these relationships kind of get forged in, in Gerald's game. And now he's just kind of sustained them through. Um, I will say one other person that when they showed up in Bly Manor, I did a little dance. Um, and that is Matthew Holness. Mm. I was not expecting to see Matthew Holness in a major Netflix production. Um, Matthew Holness, uh, those of you who, who may not know is, is the writer and star of, of possibly one of my favorite television shows of all time, which is shocking because there's only six episodes. <laughs> it's less than three hours of content, but I watch it again and again and again. And that is, uh, Garth, Garth Marenghi's dark place. Dark place. Uh, and that is like all of those memes that you've seen where there's mm-hmm. the writer and there's the joke about <laughs> subtext, right? Like I've known Rod is no subtext. Never. Pussies, right? You know, like that kind of thing. It's that's that's Matthew Holness working with Richard Ayoade and Noel Fielding and Matt Barry and and you know Everyone comedians that have funny. now become now become huge British stars. Matt Barry is is on What We Do in the Shadows and he was fantastic. He had a huge star turn on IT Crowd, which is now problematic because Graham Linehan's a piece of shit. Um, he always was. He kind of always was. Um, he's also at, on Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yeah. Although I do love his his one on-screen character that i mean played, i but, uh that, i could yeah, spend hours talking about that we don't have to go there that's fine we don't have to go there it's fine uh but anyway so seeing matthew holness show up on that says okay mike flanagan knows horror he knows the landscape of horror because matthew holness has turned into a very fantastic horror director on his own uh he's got a film on amazon prime um and the name is escaping me at this point uh i'll i'll think of it at some point in the show and, and try and throw it out there but and then blurt it out uh, uh i'm gonna look for it because i can't help it uh possum there we go uh that possum is scary as hell oh my gosh it's so so creepy uh but matthew holness is great he has been around for a very long time i love him when he shows up in in blind manor i was like yes yes mike flanagan you you know you know and uh and it's great it's wonderful so he he does these limited series he's adapting these great works of literature right uh shirley jackson for the haunting of hill house uh henry james for the haunting of Bly manor which is based on turn of the screw so he's doing these fantastic adaptations of of you know these are stories that have been adapted haunting and hill house have been adapted you know what five times at this point um, most of them terribly. Uh, the Liam Neeson one from the '90s mm. is an especially bad one. If you just want to see like a terrible, well, and that's a terrible thing. adaptation of that story. You know, um, Haunting of of Hill House is a is a great book, and uh, Turn of the Screw is a great book. Mm-hmm. But they are not very straightforward to adapt. I mean, I think I think you know what he did with Stephen King really was kind of a, a test in a lot of ways. Like if you can adapt that. You can probably you can probably do that with anything. Um, so he's really good at finding nuggets to to focus on from these these otherwise kind of difficult cagey stories that 
It wouldn't necessarily be very scary, especially with Bly Manor, because um, Victorian horror, nothing supernatural really happens in those books. It's just like a lot of creaky hallways and, you know, bumps in the night and nothing really substantial as far as jump scares. Not even to what, you know, what was in uh, The Haunting of Hill House. So it's kind of incredible that he's able to find not only you know, the interpersonal drama, the things that you want to see with characters, but also he finds the scary stuff. He manages to build in a lot of terror where, I don't know, Turn of the Screw is kind of light on scares. I mean, I hope people didn't go out and buy that book at Barnes & Noble Classic Edition or something and think that it was scary. <laughs> oh, I can't scary. wait. Yes. Uh, no, it's it's not. It's it's atmospheric at best. You know, it's it's not even something on the level of like an Edgar Allan Poe story, uh, which which by comparison to modern stuff is tame. So um, it's. He's a smart adapter. I mean, if I can put it that way, he finds the kernel of the story that he needs. And then he develops those emotions, he develops those those character moments, and then he intersperses it with horror. And it's not a flavor that everybody likes, right? So we generally talk about, you know, failures that deserve your attention, right? That's kind of our focus here. And the thing for me with Flanagan, if you go look at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, most of his stuff is very critically well received. Before I Wake is by far the lowest thing. And that's because it's probably the most kind of typical, it's kind of the most typical horror movie on here. And it came out during a time when there was lots of that stuff on the market. Uh, not that it's bad. It really isn't. Uh, again, there's really strong emotional core to it that works well. It's a fantastic performance from a tiny, tiny, tiny Jacob Tremblay, the tiniest Tremblay. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it was very in, indicative of other types of horror films that were coming out at that time. You know, but there is a gulf with his work between critical response and audience response. Um, a lot of audiences, and, and we've kind of gone back and forth, you know, in the intervening week, after we decided to talk about this sort of sharing articles and stuff about midnight mass. And, and I've kind of gone back looking at some other ones and a lot of the audience reactions to his stuff is surprisingly mixed. Um, and I think a lot of this has to do with the caginess of horror audiences. Um, cause horror is very much about what you expect, right? There's a reason why, um, if you go look at like, the most valuable Blu-ray sets on the market. They're all horrors. They're all horror sets, right? They're these big box sets by like arrow for Friday the 13th, or uh, there's a new 4k Halloween set that just shipped this week that everybody's losing their minds over. Um, and that's because, and this is not to, to insult horror fans. I consider myself one horror fans really like watching the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. They like seeing the same thing over and over again. They like seeing what they expect to see because that's the fun of watching horror for fun, right? Like if you engage with horror um, in that sort of Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger way, you're not really watching to get deep, right? You're watching for some, some, uh, some slashes, some blood, some tits. um, And then, you know, you kind of just move on and, and it's, and that's fine. Like I, I have a place in my heart for some of those things. Uh, I'm a big Hellraiser fan and well, I think the first couple of Hellraisers are you know pretty engaging. You know, I, I've also watched all the other ones well, several it's, times. It's very I have a much, particular affinity for Hellraiser four, which I can't explain, but it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's uh it's kind of the, the thing that was created around the, uh, the 
time of the Saw movies. You know, it came back. It was the slasher thing where you had like four million in a series. And then that kind of disappeared for a while. And then it came back in the 2000s with the Saw movies. Now we love, you know, horror movie 12. They're finally dead. They'll be back in the next (laughs) one. And that's where we started to see these resurgences of some of the classic slasher franchises, right? Which Halloween is back now. And and I'll Mm -hmm. say I enjoyed the the 2018 Halloween. I think it's a solid flick. I Uh, haven't seen most of the Halloween movies. That's fine. Like... I kind of like that Halloween 2018 skips all of them after one, just pretends like they didn't happen. Uh, Cause I think that's how most people should be. I mean, there are moments in all of them that are enjoyable, um, but yeah, it's, it's Halloween is one of the dottiest of those franchises. Cause with like Friday the 13th after part like four, you just kind of knew what you were in for. And, well, yeah, and, just and that's, that again. and that's kind of what we mean about, you know, the response to people after Flanagan is that it doesn't have that installment kind of horror. Yeah, no, not at all. Even though his TV shows are kind of trying to build some sort of, you know, repetition with the way that they're constructed. Um, Sure. Yeah. He definitely has a writing pattern for his shows. Um, He's very, he's very end loaded, right? Most of the things that, horror fan is going to want to see are going to happen in the last like two episodes right if not the last episode and midnight mass is probably the the, where that is the most apparent because the the show takes a long time to get started i mean you can see Mm -hmm. pretty clearly where it's headed if you're really paying attention um although the show is really fun if you're not paying attention because then it's really exciting when everything kind of goes to hell when everything goes to hell it's it's very very exciting um, but that gulf in that audience response, I, I was talking to somebody this week too, because uh, in a previous episode we had talked about uh, Ari Aster, you know, with Midsummer and Hereditary and, and sort of his brand of, of horror. And, and, you know, I'd made the comment that it was much more serious. And I guess just to clarify, I think it's, that's more of like a tonal issue, right? I, I don't doubt that Ari Aster is enjoying himself and having a good time. And there are certainly moments of black humor in what he's doing, um, fantastically so. But at the end of the day, he doesn't want you to feel anything but terrible, right? Like his, the emotions that he's trying to dredge from you are are truly, truly mission uh, at least, accomplished. I mean, at least for me. I mean, I guess I could with horror. That's it's one of those genres. You know, we've said this before. Two horror and comedy are they're two of the genres that really they, they come down so heavily to personal preference and reaction. Right. Like, you know, it's the reason why somebody can watch Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo and be like, that's the funniest movie I've ever seen. And then another person watches is like, what is this? Is this even funny? And the answer is no. (laughs) But but, you know, like that's the difference. And horror is very much the same. Right. There there are people who can watch one piece of horror and be completely unmoved by it. And then somebody who watches that exact same piece of horror and says, this was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. And, and that's, that's an incredibly personal thing. But for me, Ari Aster, his, his goal, right? The, the intended effect that he wants to create is one of deep internal fear, right? Um, just legitimate fear. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on his stuff. Uh, I could probably use to rewatch Midsummer, honestly. Um, you know, but but Flanagan is not in that ballpark 
with his horror. Like, that's not what he's trying to do. He's taking it seriously. Don't get me wrong. But the emotional core of his projects is much brighter. Right? It's, it's, there's some positivity there that kind of buoys everything at his the center. His movies of are not a Debbie Downer. <laughs> no. I mean, even <laughs> though terrible things happen, at the center of these stories is an emotional core of positivity. And I think that that's one of the things that horror fans don't like. Um, and that makes me a, really sad because I, I feel like horror movies could benefit from having a little bit more of this. I feel like Malignant kind of had a little bit more of a lighthearted message to it at the end about sure. family and acceptance. Family. And it's like, you know, finding your family, you don't have you to have go, family, you blood. put some yeah. kind of positivity in it. Like at least send me away right. from the theater, not feeling like, holy shit. My life right. Whereas, sucks. <laughs> you know, I mean, and if you look at Halloween, which honestly was the template for slasher horror, I'm not going to say it was the first. I mean, you know, we could argue, Oh, you know, who saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre first or who watched a bunch of, you know, and I'm sorry, Texas Chainsaw Italian Massacre. Horror. It's a great, it's a great film, but I it don't is. find myself wanting to watch it because it's traumatizing. Sure. It's just, it's a harrowing experience to watch it. It's, it's a difficult movie to end and, and walk away from because it doesn't resolve well. I don't think. No. In any no, way, the um, girl in the back of a truck screaming, just yeah. screaming. That was, I mean, what a way to end a film. Um, and as much as I love it, I feel like I will probably rewatch The Haunting of Hill House way more than I will watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the end because I don't want to be absolutely destroyed by a movie every time I watch it. And maybe that's a controversial thing, maybe I've just committed some sort of Sort of horror fan heresy there, but eh. no, I don't think so. But with Halloween, and this isn't, I mean, John Carpenter originated this, right? I mean, not alone, right? Deborah Hill is obviously hugely important. Like, it's not just John Carpenter, but John Carpenter is a cynic. Yes. Right? Like, John Carpenter In some hates it. Yeah. He's also I mean, a very he's, silly man. He is. But his movies, I mean, okay. At the end of Escape from L.A., the hero of the film, which, again, it's Escape from L.A. I'm sorry to reference it, but to talk about that. at the end of Escape from L.A., our hero chooses to fire off an EMP that decimates the world, that takes us back to the Stone Age, according to Powers. And he, or, or he is the Beach. hero. He's the hero, and he's doing that. Um, and He is an outlaw. I, he is. He absolutely is. <laughs> but but I, I think, and if you look at John Carpenter's stuff, right, you look at They Live, you look at In the Mouth of Madness, you look at, at <laughs> not only is he cynical about the process of being creative, right? Like it's, a lot of it you can feel is him wrestling with creativity in, in business and how does that go together, which is probably why he doesn't make movies anymore. Um, but there's this there's this cynicism at the heart of all of John Carpenter's work, including Halloween, right? One of the reasons why Michael Myers works as a character is he's nothing. He's empty. He's a shape, right? We don't care what he is or where he came from. He's just evil. And it's this cynicism at the center of Carpenter that says the world can just create things like this. There's no reason for it. There's no way understanding it. 
You just have to be afraid of it. And that cynicism, I feel, has basically pervaded modern horror since. And Flanagan, on the opposite side of that, is not cynical. Yeah. Um, not at all, right? He's, he's especially in Midnight Mass, I'm going to go and say he's world-weary. Like, you can see that he's struggling to sort of be okay with people in Midnight Mass and in, in a lot of his more recent output. But he's not a cynic. He's he's an opt. I mean, I'm not going to say he's an optimist, but he believes in in at the very least the power of emotional connection between people and families specifically, and and so that gives his horror a, a sort of uplift at the end, right? It sort of gives it this this resonance that lifts it out of that that sort of cynical. Ah, everything sucks. Everybody sucks. The world sucks. The all these fucking teenagers deserve to get fucking axe in the back you know like it it sort of comes away from that you can't it, he doesn't want you to to let you feel that right because even when the shittiest people in midnight mass get their their comeuppance you still didn't want to see him get it yeah you're like i feel i feel sorry for you and that is not a thing that i think a lot of horror fans like they want to be like and and again I, i'm i'm generalizing here obviously um, but I think a lot of horror fans, people who engage with this because, oh, it's spooky or, oh, it's October or whatever. Um, that's not necessarily something that they are looking for. And I think it is more likely to leave the viewer confused and upset than it is to necessarily, you know, sort of hit it. I, I'm going to use a word here and I, I, I want to get your read on it, but. And this is so snooty. I, I'm, I apologize. This is so. Oh boy. Uh, this is so. Uh, I have a master's degree. Uh, it's it's that, but I I would dare to say that Mike Flanagan is the most literary horror director. Well, yeah. That we have working. He is he's a literary horror director, because his stories, in my opinion, take the time to develop characters, which is the hallmark difference between what we would consider quote unquote popular literature or popular film and television um, versus something that verges on the literary, right? I, I hate to conflate film and, and, and you know, traditional books because they don't have to be the same thing. They shouldn't be the same thing. But Flanagan is reaching for something in that arena that most other horror writers, if they are going for it, it gets sort of sanitized out of their films before they release um, but Flanagan is being given the space to have those things. And he's proven that it's an effective formula with haunting at Hill house and Bly Manor. And now Midnight mass, which is also done pretty well for him. Um, so what do you think about that? I, I certainly don't want to just throw that out there and be like, Oh, this I, is true. I think that that's, that's a pretty fair assessment. I mean, it helps that he's staying in this sort of realm of adaptations. Now, of course, Midnight mass is original. Um, right, and it's one that you know he had he's been working on for a very long time so it's it's had a long time to sort of go through changes and <clears throat> it clearly has morphed a lot you can tell that it just has um yes but i think working in in the realm of adaptation for you know as many projects as he has it's probably given him an edge on how to bring in you know, some of that literary 
you know, development to those characters because that's part of it. You have to figure out how to balance, you know, what is in the book with what can be done on screen. And he's found a really incredible way to do that. Yes, I, I think so. And I, I appreciate it. Like I said, I, I, I like what he's doing. Um, I think horror is a very big space that's rapidly expanding. I think there's lots of different types. Um, you know, even just on this show, we've looked at all of these different films and, you know, had the discussion, is this its own genre? Is it part of horror or is it, you know, sort of touching upon horror? And, and I, I don't want to see horror sort of get beaten down into a single sort of monolithic thing. And, and, you know, not that I feel like anybody's trying to do that. I think there are people within the horror fandom that would like to see that. They would like to kind of just see the same thing over and over again. Um, which I think is, is ultimately a mistake for any genre because you need lots of entry points, right? You need a midnight mass to bring in somebody to, to give this a try to be willing to look into something else. And, you know, I think Flanagan is a good entry point for a lot of people that might say, I don't think I like horror or I don't want to watch horror because he can sort of do, you know, create traditional drama and then sort of weave the horror in, in ways that feels logical and and that's not an easy task um so let's uh, unless you have anything else uh, let's go ahead and move into our discussion of, of midnight mass now we, we can't cover the whole show we're not going to do scene by scene breakdowns or anything like that it's it's seven very packed hours of netflix content here um but uh let's talk just a little bit non-spoiler free and then we'll just kind of have our, our spoiler discussion after that um, so I will go ahead and say that I went into Midnight Mass knowing nothing about it. I had seen nothing. I hadn't watched any trailers. At this point, it's Flanagan. I know I'm going to watch it. Like, there's no question in my mind. I don't need to consume any of the prehensile material um, to, to get me there. It's like, I'll check it out as soon as I get the chance. I, I don't watch trailers anymore. I... I even refused until just recently after Midnight Mass came out to follow him on Twitter because I didn't mm. want to know anything about any of the projects he was making. Um, <laughs> sure. I don't know why I'm like that, but it just it means that when I when something comes out, when you get that little alert signing into Netflix that like, oh, it's out now. It means I can mm -hmm. just sit down and I have nothing. I just have right. the show because um, that's how I went into Haunting of Hill House. And I don't think I've had a good time like that watching a television show ever i i mean maybe x files made me feel that excited about tv sure that's yeah. i mean and that's a big statement that show was everything it's, it's been um, a while. Yeah. so and hey they both had annabeth gish how about it um Pretty interesting yeah. so so yeah i went into it knowing absolutely nothing other than it was him it's it's tv and it's got the cast in it it has all of the people that he works with on a regular basis and so many right. more Right. Um, so it kind of has that feel. And, and obviously Netflix was marketing that component of it, right? They're saying, hey, if you liked Haunting a Hill House, if you liked Bly Manor, here's Midnight Mass. They, they know when they've got a good thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and it obviously worked. Um, it was, you know, all the rage for a couple of weeks there. A lot of people talking about it, a lot of writing being done about it, uh, a lot of which, you know, we'll, we'll probably reference as we go through. But um, so I went in knowing nothing. Um, I think that that is is kind of a preferable way, especially for this project, because I think even knowing kind of what 
subgenre of horror it touches upon is is probably I'm not going to say a spoiler, but it it will it will accelerate some reveals of things that you probably don't want to accelerate. Um, and Flanagan is in no rush to accelerate accelerate in the in the film, um, which I, I for me I really think you know Haunting of Hill House and and Bly Manor as well. These are really just seven hour movies. Like that's yeah. that's all they are. <laughs> like they're not television shows. They're they're not really it's the mini up like television shows. Yeah, it is. They're, they're just broken up into chunks. It's it's the revival of the miniseries in the best way. Um, yes. Like I remember the It miniseries. I was very very small when that you happened. Were, yes. But that was like the most exciting oh, four and a huge. half hours of television it because huge. it was like it was a movie. Nights. It was a little longer. Yeah. Um, I felt similarly excited about the the one. Shining with with Steven Weber, and then you know that turned out how it turned out. It's fine, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know. But there were there were so many mini series, especially of Stephen King's work in the '90s, and that's kind of what this reminds me of, only on a much better production scale. Right. This is this is the mini series with actual money. Behind this is not the Tommy Knockers anymore. <laughs> hey, Marg Helgenberger was. <laughs> Next level, Jimmy Smiths. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it is. It's you know the miniseries event on television in the '90s was was a big deal. Um, it fell off very quickly because the, the the production value just went through the floor. Um, because you know these studios were not they wanted the ratings, but they didn't weren't willing to put any budget behind it. And that works for it because it you know the first three hours of it is just people running around. It's kids in a sewer. You know, it's kids in a sewer or a, or a forest. We got know, a sewer. It's cheap. <laughs> but the, you know, other Stephen King stuff, but I guess that's, that's part of Flanagan's appeal too, is that he's, he's not just reviving actual Stephen King stories. He's reviving the things that he, cause we're almost, he and I are almost the exact same age. He's a little bit older than I am. Um, but, but he's reviving all of those cool horror things that we all loved from the nineties and then doing his own thing with the formats, not just the stories. And so that's really what these, these three projects have been. And midnight mass, I think is sort of the ultimate expression of Flanagan using that format to its fullest. I, I don't think it's ultimately as strong as, as Hill house or Bly Manor. I think it's, it's very, it's for me, it's on par with Bly Manor in terms of its overall quality and effect. Um, I think the performances in midnight mass are a little better than the ones in Bly Manor, not necessarily because of any particular actor. I just think that the, the material is development, the material is stronger. Exactly. Um, but it's a show that much like all of Stephen King's best work, it's rooted in the everyday and even more so than, you know, Hill house or, or Bly Manor. It's rooted in these very mundane things that you take for granted as just being a part of daily life. And then he slowly unwinds those things and turns them into horror. And that is, is a sort of Stephen King stable or staple. That's something he constantly does. It's why Stephen King's horror is so accessible to so many readers, I think, is that he touches everything upon something recognizable, something you would know, something you can understand. Um, you know, under the dome would be a good example. Not the TV show, but the book. But um, you know, it's like this. See, small that's the town problem with, with Stephen King is you always have to say, dome, "I mean the book, know? not the movie." 
Not the TV right. show. Not the thing no, that Flanagan. they made out of it. Just the book. Just the book. Uh, yeah. Ignore the, the way that it was sensationalized for its television <laughs> show. But um, but yeah, so Midnight Mass is very much in that vein. Uh, it takes place on a small island in Maine. I honestly don't remember. The East Coast. <laughs> the East Coast somewhere. Um, Crockett's Island, I guess, because there's a lot of crockpot jokes, which I think are very... Yeah, they call it the crock pots, um, which is a good That is a very joke. cringy small town thing that people would <laughs> It is. Oh, do. it absolutely is. Yeah, every everything that happens in this story in terms like if if you're a person from a large, you know, sort of like city and you've just never been to like a a church social, um, you're probably gonna look at that and be like, ah, oh, that would never happen. Oh, it absolutely does. Hundred percent happens. And the all smaller the, time. the town, the weirder the town. The weirder it is. And um, Mm. It, this you and I have engaged. <laughs> yeah, you and I have engaged with these weirdos um, on many occasions because <laughs> um, they're always there. Uh, if you've ever spent any time in a religious institution of any kind, they're there always, and they're generally well-meaning and typically nice people. But it doesn't take too it. It's it's not too far a turn around the corner before things can get weird. Uh, and that's kind of what Flanagan's going for here too. Uh, he's talked a lot about this. He grew up in Salem. He, well, he was born there, spent a lot of his early childhood there. So he has this kind of weird connection to East coast horror, you know, growing up in, you know, where the witch trials happen, um, which he's talked about. He also grew up Catholic um, midnight mass. If, if the title was not a giveaway uh, is very much rooted in the Catholic faith. Um, which I've seen some pretty negative reactions to. Uh, a lot of people do not like how much church is in this show because it's a lot, but it's kind of the point. So I kind of get it. Um, but it's really about, you know, basic setup. It's about a, a small community that is suffering. They had an ecological disaster off their coast several years prior that has kind of ruined their fishing uh, and their opportunity to fish. So the island has gotten poorer and poorer and poorer and people have left and, and found other places to go. So it's kind of a, a decaying community, right? Uh, and, and this worked for me as well, because we come from a decaying community, right? Like it, I, I still drive through the town that I grew up in and it's, it's kind of collapsing from within. Uh, it's just not able to bring in enough new people to sustain itself kind of thing. It's, it's not dead, but it's not doing great either you know you drive down main street there's a lot of empty businesses right a lot of places in town are just there's no one and and that's sad right it kind of breaks your heart and that's that's really what's happening to this little you know fishing community on this island um it's it's got an array of fascinating characters at the center of it is a priest who has come to replace the aging priest that uh, has been on the island seemingly forever according to most people but he's come to replace him because he's fallen ill after an excursion overseas that the parishioners provided for him as kind of a thank you for his years of service. And um, he's kind of a young firebrand again, something that we've seen before um, who, you know, preaches from the pulpit loudly, gets a lot of people excited and, and then things begin happening at the church and, uh, and everything kind of devolves from there. Um, we have a, a sheriff, who is a Muslim, a devout Muslim practicing, who has come to the island basically to get away from a past that still haunts him uh, in New York City. 
and he has brought his young son with him in the hopes that they can find just a quiet place for him to have a most straightforward life. Um, of course, it doesn't really go that way. But I, I mean, the, the setups are great. Um, we have a, you know, a character at the center of it who has committed a heinous evil, if you will, uh, by accident, but nonetheless, who's searching for some kind of redemption and might be able to find it in uh, Father Paul, but uh, is disappointed so it's it's a great series it's a good setup for a series that is exactly this long yeah and i can't imagine it being any longer yeah. um i don't want to see a sequel to yeah. this we don't need it there's there's a little opening there's an open window for them to do a little bit of a sequel but i don't get the feeling that that is something that flanagan is going to be interested in uh although netflix might be interested in doing um but I really don't know how much else I want to say about it. Is there anything else you would add before we kind of get into spoilers be here? Um, well, I would caution. I mean, I want people like if you haven't seen it, go like watch it. But I would definitely want to comment, you know, for myself on how much more enriching this probably is to somebody who's familiar with religion and Christianity in the United States. I could see how this wouldn't appeal sure. to an audience that is outside of that experience. Um, yes, this is very much an, an, an American religious religious upbringing program. kind of yeah. story. Like you can tell that this was made by a person who was brought up in churches like this, who was brought up in this sort of culture um i can see how this depiction of religion would be too much for some people and maybe that's mm -hmm. why some horror audiences didn't latch onto it but however however i grew up religious you grew up religious i think we both appreciate that about it yes um i the the honesty of it and its willingness to deal to deal with it honestly right yeah. it's it's not hard to make religion evil when you cherry pick right it's, it's, it's actually really much harder to, to make do it that. to make it uh, not evil <laughs> yeah um it's you know religion is, is fairly easy to frame as destructive and violent and cruel and um but you generally do that by ignoring all the stuff about religion that encourages people like be good right and that's fine um, I've enjoyed many films that take that approach and and they they are successful at it. But Flanagan does something much harder in that he tries to honestly and and realistically present the ideas of the the modern American Bible viewed through the lens of Catholicism realistically uh, in a way that that seems genuine, right? Like, you know, there's nobody up here like, you know, pulling a line from Amos about splitting open mother's bellies and being like, that's what we're going to do. You know, like there's nobody doing that because that's that's real simple to make, you know, religion evil. But there is a lot of religious discussion in this show, um, intense, long religious discussions. There are full homilies, like actual homilies of homily length in this show delivered brilliantly, like brilliantly. But if you're not down for that, or if that's going to be traumatic for you to, to become involved in, in a television show because of your own past with, with religious upbringing, then yeah, this is going to hit you wrong. 
because he's not immediately dismissing of all of it. He's not immediately just waving the hand and being like, listen to this bullshit. Oh my God. No, like he really is thinking about it. Like you can tell these are questions that Flanagan has probably wrestled with passages from the Bible that he has wrestled with for a long time. But the thing that is people are making it sound like this is the first time he's done this. And that was the piece for me that I was like, no, (laughs) you remember that second episode of Bly Manor where the kids just at a boarding school being taught religion for like the whole time. Mm-hmm. Because it's basically the same thing. I mean, that entire second episode is built around the story in the Gospels of Jesus casting the demons out of the man into the pigs, right? And then the boy's question is, well, did the man have to accept them like the pigs did, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like that. That's like a that's that's a that's a theological question, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a deep theological question that many people have asked. It's like, okay, well, what does this say about demon possession? Well, the and, mechanics of demon possession given this and, you know, and, any, and so you any can tell time, he's wrestled with this stuff anytime we have a, a filmmaker or an author or anybody who's who's pretty openly saying that they're you know agnostic or, or atheist um but then they are not condemning of religion people just don't really know how to handle it yes and and that's another piece of this that i think a lot of people were disappointed by i, I know i forwarded an article to you from vox um that had a review of the film that was really more of a definition essay about what horror is and how midnight mass wasn't that. Um, I I wish I was still teaching (laughs) argumentative writing at the collegiate level because that's, it's the best example of a definition essay I've read in a long time Um, because the author basically spent the entire article explaining what is horror and, and what is it? And mostly through what it's not. And most of the, what it's not examples were from midnight mass, um, which again, I, I fine with that. I don't really consider midnight mass straight horror. Like it certainly has horror elements, but whatever. I think that something being straight horror with no other touches from any other genre would be terrible. I think that's when you get things that are like torture porn or like cannibal Holocaust. That's when you mm-hmm. peel away every other genre there is to enjoy. Then you have pure horror. So right. I just don't agree with that basic premise. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and it's fine. But I think one of the reasons why that reviewer was so against the the religious presentation in the show was that it was not dismissive of that religion. Yeah. Like it's not, not even at the end when when things inevitably, you know, turn. Um it's it's there's still a positivity about religion to it. Um, I think he's obviously disturbed by what can happen when when people you know sort of blindly follow, but that doesn't mean that it invalidates the entirety of the thing. And I think people didn't necessarily know what to do with that. Um, and so again, I, I don't want to you know harp on that too much, but it certainly is a core element of this show. And if you're not ready for that, you're you're gonna have a bad time, like you you are. Um, I was surprised by it and I was fine with it, but you know, again, our, our feelings on, on how this can be you know, viewed in media are, might be a little different than some others based on our past experience. Um, but this is at its core, midnight mass is a extremely well-directed. This is a, this is a well-directed show. It, it's at times shockingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's also very traditionally shot there's there's some sort of extreme stuff in here in terms of camera work but the things i love mostly about it it's it's shot at night a ton 
which is so difficult to do, even with modern camera technology, shooting at night is a pain and it's done so beautifully here. Um, we've already talked about John Carpenter, this show, some of the shots in this, some of the work in this reminds me so much of early John Carpenter. Um, it has that feel, um, Flanagan is okay in working with stillness, which I think is really exciting as a horror director, modern horror, you know, sort of the, and I don't want to harp on like the Rob Zombie, like Halloween type stuff, but it's the camera work is just as, as, as violent and visceral as what you're seeing most of the time in horror, right? It's the camera's getting thrown around, it's slamming into things. You know, it's the Sam Raimi approach where the camera is a kinetic viewer that's showing us just how chaotic everything is. Flanagan is still. Flanagan is calm and it works very well for a TV show for one um, just in framing and seeing what's going on. But it also does a lot for the type of horror that he's showing us here, which is the same type of thing he was doing in Hill house and Bly Manor. You know, there's a lot of slow pans. Oh, there's something in the background. What the hell is that? You know, there's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff here, which, which works exceedingly well. And as, as Flanagan continues to develop that very specific style, I, I am just excited about where he's going. To, this dude's got 40 years left in his career. Like, Jesus, what is he going to be capable of in, in 10 or 15 or 20? As long as he keeps to get, he keeps you know, getting the opportunity to make these things. It's, it's going to be something else. And I'm very excited about that. But it's, it's well shot. It's incredibly well acted. Couple of low points. And again, these are, these are minor in comparison and, and you can certainly bounce, bounce off me here. Um, there's some old age makeup mm-hmm. that is in operation here. Um, very effectively used, but some of it doesn't look that great. I agree. Um, it's just okay. It's similar to some stuff that we saw in uh, Bly Manor. Bly Manor had some old age makeup mm-hmm. or just some aging stuff that they did. It's, it's very similar. You can tell he's probably worked with the same production company. Uh, or the same, you know, special effects company. It's and not it's, like it's, Prometheus bad. <laughs> no, it's it's, um. it's not Guy Pearce and Prometheus bad. <laughs> that's like oh god, that's my yeah. measure for bad old age makeup now. Um, <laughs> um, yes, when your old age makeup is is measured in the number of liver spots you can put into a square yeah. inch on the face, you've gone too far. But um, but it is noticeable, and and I think it's it is. for me what really did it because Father Paul, um one point should we just get on with spoilers we're, we're, we're past um, that right well i guess we we can we can bump into that now so i mean midnight mass is a great series if you have not yet watched it it is well worth your time especially if you found things to enjoy in either Bly Manor or haunting a hill house or even one of his film projects like dr sleep um it is it is a a carefully produced brilliantly written in, in many ways and wonderfully acted yeah. sp- spooky tv show Right. It's it's it it may be the most October show that has ever been Octobered. Yeah. And you should definitely check it out during this this season of the witch. During this ourselves in. This Halloween. This all hollows eve that we are embarked upon. Uh it is it is well worth your time. Uh it is flawed, it is not perfect, um, but it is it it is exceptionally well done. Uh so yes, I, I guess unless you have anything else to say, we're gonna say spoilers. So the old age makeup was fine. <laughs> I mean, I just, I really have to address that part. The old age makeup was okay. Yes. But combined with, what's her face? The, uh, the name, Bev? that actress. 
Um, Samantha Sloyan? No, it was uh, uh, the mother. Was it the mom? The mom. mom. When Um, she is in old age makeup, it is because that actress cannot pull off an old person. Yeah, Kristen Lehman. She was going for the Winona Ryder in Edward Scissorhands old age voice. Oh no, voice. you're talking Annabeth Gishmont. Yes, uh, Annabeth yeah, Gish's yeah, mom. Yes, yeah. yes. Sorry, uh, Alex Esso. Yeah. There we go. Um, that that's where it disconnected for me. Otherwise, I think I could have lived with the old age makeup, but it was something about the combination of the voice with her old age makeup that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the same actress that played Wendy Torrance. Yep, and she was great. Great in, in Doctor Sleep. Oh, so good. She's um, very. She's talented. she is too young. She's yeah. just too young um, to to play this. So, all right. Uh, so, as we get into spoilers, let's let's get into to the big thing. So, this town has had a a a new pastor come that has revitalized the church. He is, um, you know, and, and he starts sort of weaving his way through the town, and he starts administering mass to people who have been homebound and things like that, which again is a thing that happens. Um, in essence, when I was watching this, I didn't realize what it was until the really the start of the second episode, right? Because when you come into this, it actually opens with our, a character named Riley, who uh, has killed a young girl in a drunk driving accident, um, which becomes a, a really fantastic visual because uh, every time he falls asleep, he sees this girl in her her you know destroyed state. Uh, it's one of the more it's one of the only things in the first episode that's truly kind of scary or horrific. There's it's a very Flanagan-y moment. thing too to have the, the ghost that haunts you of the terrible things that you've done. Um, uh, I loved the effect on her face, uh, uh, the embedded mirror mirrors. glass. Uh, um, again, very Oculus-y. You can tell maybe that was an effect that he was you know playing with with Oculus, and it never really came to to fruition. But here, you know, he gets to play it out. Um, basically he sees her with all of the embedded glass in her face and then the lights of the police siren or the police lights shining in them. And this, it's almost, I mean, if you have like a strobing effect thing, it could trigger that. Like it's very intense. Um, but so he's coming back. He's kind of our entry point to the Island and he there very much doesn't want to be there. And he finds out, you know, most of the people don't want to be there, but he's got this tenuous relationship with his family. His dad is played by Henry Thomas uh, he's aging. He's this, you know, runs the the local fishery and is just having a terrible time. His mother is is sort of the the quiet, stable, you know, like the mom, the Midwestern mom, right? Even though this is the East Coast, like she is, she is the just the keep going. Everything's fine. My baby is home. I don't care what happened. I love you. You know, just the very you know typical supportive, thing. trying to keep. Together. Yeah. And then, you know, his younger brother, who's basically following in his footsteps, making all the same mistakes he did, because if you live in a tiny town like this, what do you want to do? Get out as quickly as possible, which is exactly what he had done. And then he you know, screws up so badly he has to come back. Um, and so as he's coming back, this new father arrives and, and Flanagan, he's giving you all the clues, right? Like this show is not mysterious in that way, because um, the new father arrives. He's dragging this massive trunk pulls the trunk into the house. He knocks on it twice, two knocks back. You know, it's, it's, you, you know, something's up. Um, but this, this is a, a vampire show. This is a show about vampires. And that was surprising to me because I was like, Flanagan's never done vampires before. He likes the spooky ghosts. He likes the, the creepy, I, I have a cane ghosts, right? 
And so I was, uh, I was genuinely surprised. Um, it immediately brought to mind Salem's Lot, which is probably one of the one of the touch point inspirations for this show. I, I think that's pretty undeniable. Yeah. Um, honestly, he could have changed a couple of things about the show and called it Salem's Lot <laughs> and just been fine. Like it would have worked. Um, but I, I think there's another production of Salem's Lot running right now. So they, they well, there's always 10 or 12. This may have been this may have been Flanagan's take on Salem's Lot in its initial form, <clears throat> and then he sort you know sort of spun it off in his own way. So you know the major things that are going on is that this new father is not a new father at all. He is the old one, but the old one while he was in uh, the uh, in Israel, I guess, uh, going down the Damascus Road, he. It's, he's, he's so aging and so senile that he gets lost from his tour group, wanders into the desert, and finds a buried temple, like exorcist style. With an right? angel in it. Yes. Except it's not and, an angel. Except it's definitely not an angel. Um, and so he... Like right. And, and so he's, he's come back because the other thing that I think it's easy to miss is that all of that happens in like a couple of weeks. Uh, it's very quick that he makes it back. And, and so he being this, this priest who has nurtured this small community for the entirety of his life, he has brought this angel back because he believes that it's the best way to save them. Um, he has convinced himself that this is of God, that uh, the angel possesses the power to reinvigorate them as he has been reinvigorated because all of his age, um, is, is taken away. He's young again, made perfect and whole by the, the angel's blood, right? Again, not too hard to make these leaps with the Christian faith, um, especially the, you know, Catholicism and its, its specific belief. Christianity is already belief. very spooky. <laughs> uh, yes. It I mean, it's just a lot of spooky, spooky things happen where, you know, it's not, like you said, it's a couple of steps away from being vampires. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and, and Flanagan is exploiting that here. Uh, it's one of the places where he does pull specifically from, you know, the text to support that, that belief. But I mean, in, but this is not surprising either, right? Vampires have been wound up in Catholicism from the start, right? From the start. They, you know, it, it got amped up in the, the mid 20th century, you know, obviously by, by all kinds of different insurrections. Uh, sources and inputs but ultimately vampirism and and the christian you know catholic religion uh have always been together so this is not a pairing that's that's necessarily new or fresh but i think that flanagan is bringing something new to the table by being so studied about how you might tie them together because he's got to justify why this priest would do this and how this priest has convinced himself that this is what needs to happen um and so really the rest of the show once that's revealed which is i appreciated that flanagan didn't prolong that um because that reveal is made and and basically everything boils down by like episode three um and you kind of know oh this is where we're headed and the rest of the show is really just watching at first a small group of people get on board with this idea and then how that idea basically infects the entire town. 
um, mostly because what they're offered are, or what could easily be misconstrued as miracles. Um, and, and the miraculous has always been a, a very specific kind of lure for people of faith. Um, and, and Flanagan seems to, to know that. And, and so that gets exploited too. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if we need to, to delve into the entire show. We can certainly get there here in a minute, but I, I think I know one thing you wanted to talk about. So I'll let you jump into this was, uh, Hamish Linklater's performance um, as Father Paul. He's amazing. Uh, I think that might have been one of the best performances that I've seen on television in, in years. Um, just so, I mean, we, we talked about this before that religion can go evil so easily if you are sort of cold and disengaged and you just use the sort of subversion of, of you know, all of the religious icons, like nuns, you know, we love a good spooky nun now. Um, and that, you know, that really started <laughs> Thanks, with James Wan. You and, did it. And it's, it's so ironic to me that that really took off that whole aesthetic of evil priests, evil nuns. It took off after the exorcist, which did not have evil priests. In it. No, it no, had those priests are deeply committed, devout, um, <laughs> deeply devout, yeah. warm and, and, and human characters that I love so much. I love, 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 love that movie. Uh, yeah. And that is everything that Linklater channels and more. Where the character is so warm and so, like, you love him. If you watch this and you don't love that dude, like, what's wrong with you? Um, it's, it's just, yeah. it is absolutely... Not what you would expect a priest or any sort of religious authority in a horror movie to be like, where you yeah. you really connect with him, both both just as a human with you know the human side of of his struggle and his story, but also when they do show him you know at the pulpit giving a message, it's actually really fascinating and he's really dynamic to watch. Yes. Um. Uh, again, I, I've worked in a number of parochial schools, and and I have been to daily mass many times. And not only what I saw was was an accurate mass, like it was accurate, um, but it was the same. You know, when a, a guest priest would come from another facility who was a little bit younger, a little mm -hmm. fiery, like it was it was that feel. And, and he does so with, he, he's very careful in this performance. He's not going too far. Um, Father Paul, as we see him is, is somewhat reserved. He's quiet when he's not, you know, on stage, so to speak. He, he's he reminds me a lot of people that I've met who are, are, you know, every every preachers, young you know. pastor that I met who was, you know, at all an interesting person, a human person, not mm. a monster, which there were a few of those. I mean, I'm not saying that like monstrous all, people yeah, don't exist are. in religion. Yeah. They do. Um, you know, clearly there's a reason I'm not religious now because I think it's all bullshit, but it doesn't mean <laughs> that there aren't there aren't people right. in that still in the faith who aren't like valuable people. And I guess yeah. that's what that's what he manages to capture with this character that I just really didn't expect. 
I kind of anticipate that I won't like. I anticipate that the the Bev Keen character will be the the religious trope that I will get from horror all the time. Yes. If anything, she's actually the most tropey character in the series. And as a result, the one that works the least. Um, she kind of has to be what she is. So, I mean, the basic setup here is that Father Paul has not yet transitioned fully into vampirism, even though he has been turned. Uh, so this film kind of plays with the mechanics of, of becoming a vampire a little bit, establishes some new rules. Um, and, and so he was kind of partially changed. He's still going through the change. So he's very much able to be normal. And then a, basically something happens and that can no longer be the case. And it so, helps. They don't ever use the V word. They don't really ever, they don't ever say that. So they don't, they can mess with, with how it functions all they want. And I'm really glad. Right. And and that was another thing that I feel is a strength, but also a little bit of a weakness of the show. Because at at no point did anybody go like, hey, hey, hey man, isn't this kind of like like vampires? Right? Like, aren't they becoming vampires? Like I, I didn't in in horror, like it's very popular now to to do the winky eye thing where you've got that one character that's like, yo, bro, it's vampire. You're like like, so I get that they didn't do that because that would kind of, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like time with Ari Aster and stuff. Like if he had done that, I, I think it would have kind of broken the, the series and it wouldn't work. The only character who could have is, is Riley's character. Mm-hmm. And that, and because he was so somber and so humorless that I just don't think that would have come across. No. Um. Instead, the effect for me is how, is how people will justify anything. Um, how something yes. can be so blatant can be so like, wow, do you not see what's happening right now? And they're like, no, this is great. I do right. love like the heavy denial that all of these characters are struggling with. Yes. It's kind of fabulous. And if there is a point that I think people will disengage with the show, it's that because I think most people are going to struggle to realize just how powerful that kind of thinking can be. And that when you have this person who you are, I mean, you needed to like Father Paul. I think Flanagan realized that. That's why Linklater is so dynamic in the performances. I think Flanagan's pulling that from him because he knows you need to at your core, even though you know something's wrong with that dude, like you know something's wrong with that dude, you still kind of get on board because when things turn and they turn real (laughs) hard, you need to understand why people would still follow him and listen to the words that he's saying. And listen to the, frankly, excuses that he's made in his own mind for why this is good. And we can't Um, forget that this does have a lot of touchstones with cults. That this isn't just occultism. This is this is a this is a real cult. Um, Right. There are legitimately people that who are are brought under the spell of another person, believing that they can perform miracles, believing that they are, you know, passing off tricks as as actual good works that's all real so you know you are witnessing kind of a cult mentality break out amongst these town people townspeople yes and that's one thing that you know most of us only ever see cult leaders at the end yeah of of their cult lives right we only see jim jones in ghana like Uh or guiana when when things went bad but people forget just how dynamic those guys were. It seemed like Charles Manson, right? Mm-hmm. Dude was 
dynamic and powerful. Like he got people to follow him because he was a force of will. And, and most cult leaders go that way. But by the time we see them in culture, by the time the thing has gone wrong, they've become something much different. And so we get to see that a little bit with Father Paul here too. Um, so, I mean, the, the setup is, is that Father Paul is spiking the communion wine, <laughs> which I think is just great. Like, because if, if you know anything about Catholicism, and this is explained in the show as well, in the Catholic religion specifically, when they drink that wine, it is the blood of Christ, right? It is not wine. It has been transmuted into the blood of Christ as it hits their lips and goes into the body. Uh, same with the the body and the and of the, the communion wafer. And so, like this is this is the core part of the Catholic faith is the belief in that transmutation and that that, that happens. Um, and so this show is exploiting that concept and then twisting it in this very perverse way. Like, I don't, I mean, I've seen people say like, oh, I bet Catholics would just love this show. No, 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 no. Depends if on anything, what type of Catholic you are. It depends. Yes. But if you're like a, like a Catholic who believes this show is a, per, is, is perverse. Well, I mean, I mean, within reason, I, cause I mean, sure. surely I mean, everybody fiction, knows that it's whatever, but, but like, yeah, yeah I mean, this is this is playing with something that is, is taken really, really seriously by devout. Catholics. Really seriously. And, and so it, he's, he's spiking the wine and that's where all the miracles are coming from is because in this take on vampires, when you are turned into a vampire, it reverts your body back to this sort of perfect state, at you're, least for a time. You're technically um, more awesome than the average vampire, more awesome than the average bear. Um, You've been to Jellystone and it's wonderful here. And it's, it's just, it's a very interesting approach because it then justifies a lot of what's going on here because these people are getting younger. Uh, you know, that's why these people are in old age makeup. You know, Henry Thomas is, is not that old, but you know, we'll put a little bit of extra on him. So as he is taking this communion wine and, and, and the, the change is happening in these small ways, um, cause we do get a scene, you know, towards the end of the show with Annabeth Gish, who's sort of like the town doctor, as she sort of explains, well, there's kind of like a cellular reversal going on here, right? Like cells are healing themselves in ways that they would not typically do. And, and so we do get a bit of scientific background, mostly because uh, Kate Siegel's character, um, her cells do this and unwind and, and she loses a pregnancy, right? Which I thought was, again, an, a lovely like little thing to throw in there. It's like, what would happen if you were pregnant and you got turned into a vampire? What would happen to the baby? Which we've seen approached in other vampire stories, usually with a tiny, like, baby vampire like ripping out of the womb or something to gross fashion. This one says, no, if, if it really is just sort of this way that the body would be, you know, sort of rewound in time, it would just rewind the presence of the baby, it would just reabsorb it back into the body. Cause you know, it's going to treat it like foreign cells. And so it was, it, it was kind of an interesting thing there, but that becomes sort of the crux of her emotional journey, or at least the last little bit of it. Um, and and so, I mean, we've just got so many interesting things going on here. Like Flanagan has really thought through his setup and his premise. And you can see that sort of planning and forethought in, in most of his approach, um, which, again, if, if you're doing this kind of horror, you kind of have to because you can't just kind of wing things. You've got to kind of know where you're going. Uh, and he absolutely does. Uh, the other actor I wanted to call out was, uh, again, Rahul Kohli, uh, who we saw in, in Bly Manor. He was wonderful in that. I loved all of his dad jokes and puns. So good. But uh, he plays the town sheriff here. 
Um, honestly, he was the one character that I wanted more of in the show. Most of these characters, I, by the end of it, I was like, I've seen enough of you. I, I know what you are. I don't like you anymore. But but he was the one where I was like, I really, not that I needed more. I don't feel like the show needed to have more of him. I just wanted more of him because he was so good. Aside from the fact that Rahul Kohli decked out head to toe in denim. Yeah. Nice. I'll have more of that. Nice. I mean, I, like I, wanted, a... I wanted the stronger mustache from Bly Manor because I'm all about <laughs> mustaches. But sure. Totally. But yeah, any anytime. Yeah. He was I, I've seen a <laughs> I've seen a lot of like strong dad energy. Yep. You know, it's like, and it was like, he's not that old, but he really, I mean, like he really was like, no, I believe you as, as, as this guy's, you know, this, another, this, this father. Another actor that I, I want to just, just throw out there. Michael Trucco. Yeah. Was giving the strongest Tom Skerritt from Picket Fences vibes. A lot and I just of Tom don't Skerritt know vibes. how to handle yeah. it. Just through the whole show. I'm like, good God. Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. stop it. <laughs> like he just walked yeah, right off a I, set in 1993. It's like, holy shit. Yeah, I uh I don't know, man. Uh yeah, you know, I'm I have not really seen that dude in anything since I know. Battlestar Galactica. Like I know he's he's worked, like he's worked just fine, but like Battlestar Galactic was like the last time that I saw him because he played Anders and you know I loved Battlestar. I've watched it several times. And so he was the one that made me realize what they were going to do with the old age makeup. Like with with Henry Thomas and the other parents, I was like, oh, well, he's, he wanted to work with these younger actors. But as soon as I saw Michael Truco, I was like, oh, oh, no, they're going to de-age these folks. That's what they're going to do. Um, but they're going to do it old school. Right. You know, so um, which is, is sort of like Flanagan's thing. Right. Flan if Flanagan can do it old school, he'll do it old school, which is why I, I think I love him. And I appreciate But yeah, because it's harder and it's a bigger swing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I'll tell you one thing, next time it'll probably be totally fine. And another another performance that I mean, this is just for me, and I've already talked about this with you, um, with the other appearances that she had, uh, like especially in Hill House. I want to formally apologize to Annabeth Gish for all of the mean things that I said when she was on the X-Files. That show was yeah, just really, really poorly said. written. Everybody said mean things about it. Yeah, Annabeth I mean, and, and I, that's all I remember is just those episodes were so bad. That character was so bad. And everyone sort of hung it on her. And she's an amazing actress. And she yeah. is like a superstar in both Hill House and Midnight Mass. Um, just really loved every minute she was on screen because she's just so likable and so cool. Um, and I really hate that everybody was so horrible to her with the X-Files because it was just that that show sucked. Y yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, Annabeth Gish is fine. People were just really, really angry about <laughs> the yeah. two leads of the X-Files leaving. And and I will say the last couple seasons of X Files are are not fantastic. Or I guess it was just the last season. I guess it was the ninth season. But she was um, working with everything that she could. And uh, yes, this this fault. show is is all the proof in the world that she is she's an awesome actress. Because I really really liked her character in this. Yeah, I think this is one of the strong. This is her strongest collaboration with Flanagan. I, I liked her as Clara in in Hill House. She was. Perfectly, perfectly good in that role. But this, I think, is the strongest. Um, there's some layers to her character. We we find out very quickly that she is a lesbian. 
which has isolated her from the church. Again, all of the characters that don't get involved in this all have very legitimate reasons for not getting involved, which I also love. Um, you know, Riley has this, this weight hanging on him, this sort of albatross around his neck that he can't see past. So he refuses to partake. Uh, she is a lesbian and, you know, obviously is making a stance against the Catholic church's stance on homosexuality. Um, so she refuses to engage, you know, like there's, there's Rahul Kohli is, is a devout Muslim, so he's not going to go to church and take this communion wine. You know, so I, I, I like that, you know, sort of the characters that we see sort of banding together at the end, all have these very legitimate reasons for not wanting to be involved with the Catholic church. And, you know, it, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, I, I really like what she does in this. She kind of gets some exposition hung on her at the end uh, quite a bit as she begins sort of being the one to figure out what she's happens the doctor. To people. <laughs> she's the doctor. So she's got to be the one to be like, I was testing your blood and I thought a thing happened, you know, like this kind of thing. And, and it's it's fine. We need it at that point because we need somebody saying like, because okay, otherwise just everybody on the island is insane. Because yeah, they're everybody all kind of loses in. perspective. Right. They've all kind of become these these cult, these cultists, you know, around Father Paul and his miracles. So as we mentioned, um, Riley is is kind of at the he's at the center of the show in the beginning. And and one of the things I like about Flanagan is he, he likes to take away our expectations. Um, he does subvert intentionally and, and most of the time it works. And here I think it really does because um, Riley gets turned early. Uh, he sort of mistakenly wanders in to the spiking of the communion wine by uh, the angel who has been walking around the island in priest's robes for, you know, at night just for funsies, I guess. And and um, he gets turned and, and then we get an basically an entire episode devoted to a discussion between Father Paul, Hamish Linklater uh, and Riley, where he is explaining what's happened what it means so that he can understand it and accept this quote unquote gift. And I'll be honest, if you're going to disengage from this show, it's probably going to happen on that episode because either you are willing to let this show spin itself out and have these discussions and, and hear the religious and, and biblical justifications for why this is right. Or you're just going to be like, no, no dog. <laughs> I'm good. Um, if you hang in there, I think you'll be satisfied, but it, it is certainly a big ask for, for some folks, I think. Um, but what it leads to is Riley proving to Kate Siegel's character, uh, Aaron Green, that this is real and that she needs to GTFO that island as quickly as possible, uh, which, of course, she doesn't do. But uh, yeah, but and tries. he does so by really thirty days like of knighting himself. Yes, um, he he does the thirty days of night thing, but not in the like. I honestly, when he turned as early as he did, I was like, "Oh, are we going to thirty days of night this?" Where he becomes like the good vampire <laughs> fighting the bad vampires. Because I, I seriously thought I was like, "Okay, Riley, you know, he's he's done some action e type stuff before. He could he could probably pull that off." And then, no, it just jumps through all of that and just has him burning himself alive in the morning sun. Um, but again, Flanagan, he built us to that. Like he has this recurring dream of sitting in that boat as the sun rises. 
Like he's, he's got all of this like stuff built into the character so that you completely understand why they make that choice. And it, it works super well. Like that whole thing. I was like, yes, good. Excellent. And you end up liking that character more than, than without, because I was really lukewarm on him. I was like, "Ah, he's kind of a, he's kind of a douche. I don't know. I just don't like him. Right. From the first couple episodes, I was like, why is this guy the main character of the show? Like, I don't care. And then you, then you go and do something really fucking noble. That's right. And then you realize he's not the main character of the show. Aaron Green's the main character of the show. Um, And she kind of was from the start. You just didn't pick up on it. Um, So as we mentioned, everything kind of builds to the end. Uh, The last couple episodes are very intense. It's where most of the horror comes, although there are some really good ones here. Uh, Flanagan is really getting good at like playing with reflections, right? Because this one, he makes the decision to have the vampire be illuminated via its eyes. Uh, Just that, that light reflecting off the back of the eyes, like a cat. Uh, That's really the first jump scare in the series is they're out on this Island close to theirs. And there's supposedly all these cats that got dropped off and they just multiplied. And so they constantly like shine the light on the cats to get them to run away. And so they see the little eyes, he shines the light and there's one like six feet in the air and he freaks out. And that's like your first understanding that something is wrong. And he uses that to such fantastic effect. Um, the angel, which how you could confuse it for an angel. I don't know. You would just it have has to wings. It's got it's wings. It's got great big wings. It's got big wings it's and it's quite tall. Majestic. But even that father Paul is like, when they saw the angels, they were afraid every yeah. time. So the fact that I'm well, afraid justifies that this is an angel. Exactly. I mean, and the way that the angels are described in those bizarre accounts, they are scary. Yeah. Terrifying. Most angels, if you look at the actual biblical descriptions of angels, they're not like, dudes in white robes they are like beings covered in eyes with nine wings and four yeah. hands. And you know, like they're, they're, they're jacked up. Like they're not human. Um, so it, again, totally justifiable. Again, one of the points in the show where I was expecting a character to be like, yo, is that a vampire talk? <laughs> like, like I just, I, and the fact that nobody does it, it, I'm good with it. But at the same time, I was so expecting it that I guess I was a little disappointed that no one was like, Hey man, <laughs> It looks a lot like a vampire. I don't know. Um, but so we get to see some, I mean, there are some great kills throughout this, um, you know, where he tries to keep it going, but this is not really a horror series until the last episode. Um, so one character that we've only briefly mentioned is Bev Keen, who is the devout parishioner. I mean, she is the one who's always there. Uh, we find out throughout the course of the series that she's kind of been running things for a while she is the like only the priest has aged she is the only um, sort of she's the only person at the school i mean i think aside from Aaron green she's the only teacher they have so mm-hmm. she runs i mean she runs the parish um you know very much the right hand which i really right. like and she is pure evil Yep. She is the most evil character in the show. And, 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 and the best kind of evil because she thinks that she's doing good. <laughs> she's right. Yeah. I mean, like her comeuppance in the show, it's if great. you can even call it that, is Riley's mom saying, you know, Bev, you're actually a really bad person. <laughs> like, like, that's it. She just says it. She's like, you're just a bad person. You always have been. You're terrible. And I kind of love that. Right. Like somebody just it, that all it. 
to deflate her, all someone really needed to do was just tell her how shitty she was. Yeah. But no one would ever had the willingness to do that because she held all this power. Um, so she's played very, very well by Samantha Sloyan. She's, she's a wonderful villain. We know she's a villain almost immediately because she murders a dog. Um, and, uh, so, you know, oh, she's real bad. Um, and, and then you just kind of see her, she's the, the most sort of powerful acolyte that father Paul has. And she's the one that gets a bunch of other, I guess we quote unquote, weak minded people like some of the. And it's a great opportunity for, folks. for built in drama because you can tell from the start that they're they're going to butt heads because as supportive mm-hmm. as she is of Father Paul, their ideologies don't match like they didn't from the start. Um, right. Father Paul has zeal and she is a zealot. Yeah. That's the difference, right? Like she is the believer who believes and and will will find justification to do whatever she wants in her belief. Um, whereas Father Paul, as we understand it, is in many ways sympathetic because he believed that what he was doing was good. And it was not until the end when he saw the true wrath that he was bringing on these people he thought that he, he understands. Could, I mean, it seems like he thought he could control yeah. The vampire, which that's, you know, it's great. Everybody loves a, a Sauron in the one ring kind of story. And that's, right. that's great. He thought, you know, thought he could wrangle the old vampire powers and you just can't. I mean, the thing is, is that you can, you can go the, I don't want to say the Anne Rice route, but I Ugh. guess she did kind of popularize this. You can write vampires as actual characters who have wants and wishes and needs and, and, and are trying to, to like do something maybe they don't even like this part of themselves, whatever. Or you can write them as ghouls, right? They're just stand-in monsters, right? They can be anything, interchangeable, right? Werewolves, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, which I originally, that's what I thought this was going to be, was a werewolf thing. Um, but it's harder to write them as characters, right? To, to take a vampire and, and have them be a character and have them be something that you sort of understand and, and father Paul becomes that here. Most of the rest of them know, like they, they're, they are basically, you know, violent ghouls by the end of this. But father Paul is the one who is like wrestling with what he's done. Like most of what he expresses to Riley in that long conversation is the fact that he didn't feel guilt over the first kill that he made. And that that lack of guilt must mean that it's a sign from God (laughs) that he did what was necessary. (laughs) And I was like, Okay, yeah, <laughs> right. I got you. I see what you're throwing down. Not so sure that's accurate, but you know, it's it's one of those things where you you you're continuing to justify the madness, you know, the to justify the the evil that you're you're doing because you're doing it. Um, and so the show, you know, coalesces in exactly what the title indicates: a midnight mass held. At Easter, because eventually Father Paul can't give mass in the daytime anymore for obvious reasons. Um, and it, it culminates because this takes place over the season of Lent, which I also think is very nice. Um, you know, Lent is a time of sacrifice that results in a time of rejoicing. And and so like it makes a ton of sense why Paul would would sort of structure this change in the people and then have everything come, you know, on the resurrection. Again, it's a very you kind of got to understand how the Catholic faith works to, to work this out and, and frame the story in this way. 
and and Flanagan does a really good job with that. Um, so on that night, he has everybody in. He has the again. We talked about cultists earlier. They've got the cups lined up with the poison because they're going to kill everybody, knowing that they've been infected with enough of the blood from the vampire that they will resurrect as their vampire selves. And then there'll be a colony of vampires and Bev are, has designs on spreading the gospel, spreading the good word to other places. Uh, and man, whew, that's, it's good. It's I mean, one it's of those concept. It's one of those fabulous climaxes that just feels like it gets so out of hand and so quickly. Um, yes, I love that the, the show the show is this slow boil. It's mostly people talking, very few scares. And yes. then the last two episodes are absolutely insane. <laughs> yes. I mean, and and all kinds of, of what Flanagan does best. There's a really great sequence toward the end after all the vampirism is broken out and the angel is cut loose to just sort of because not everybody on this island goes to this church, right? So there are lots of people who have like no fucking idea what's going on. And like you see, there's that, that wide shot of the house and the angel like goes in the window, like flies in the window. And then you just hear the screams for a couple seconds. And then like, you see the woman run out front and she gets attacked and it's all like one nice wide shot. Very Flanagan. Like it's just the kind of stuff he likes to do. Did a bunch of it in Dr. Sleep too. Um, It's great. I mean, it's that kind of, again, it's horror via stillness rather than kinetic energy. Right. You know, if it was Eli Roth, we'd have, you know, been on a tracking shot on the vampires. They flew into the bedroom and bit the guy in the face. And then the woman would have rolled out of bed naked and run down this. Like we would have gotten like a, you know, a, a two and a half minute sequence of that. And it's just Flanagan being like, no, it's, it's more fucking scary. If you just hear their screams from inside and then like the woman runs outside in her nightdress cause she's terrified. And then she just gets fucking destroyed. You yeah. know, like that's scarier. And, and in many ways I, I agree. It's a different kind of scary, I guess, but it's it's an effective kind of scary. So we get lots of things like that. Um, but really, it's the turn of all the townspeople, right? Seeing people that have been established through the first several episodes that you know are, are basically good people, right? People who are trying their best, who have failed, experienced tragedy, you know, because one of the early miracles is a young girl who was rendered paralyzed by a hunting, quote unquote, hunting accident where she gets shot by another local who is kind of a town drunk. Uh, played by um, the uh, Robert Longstreet. <laughs> Robert uh, Longstreet played from Mr. Dudley. Hill House. Yep. Um, played Mr. What Dudley. What an amazing actor. Dudley. Holy he, crap. I, I want to see that dude in <sighs> everything now. He's just so good. He gets like three ugly cry sequences in this, and they are, they are rough. I, oh my gosh. I have a real, I don't know, just some some things in, in my life, people who struggle with addiction, people who, you know, have that in their lives. He plays an alcoholic in, in the show. Mm -hmm. It is so believable. It is so very raw and so good. Um, Just big shout out. He's so talented. I mean, he's not in the show very long before he's... No. Dispatched. He's um, dispatched. Uh, he is actually one of the first kills that we really witness and we understand what it and is and what's happening. And it's long and careful and, and gross. really brutal mm. and really sad. Yeah. And yeah, because Father Paul kills him. And, you know, it, it's terrible because you like both of these characters. You, 
the the great thing is they've actually set up AA meetings for both Longstreet's character and Riley on the island so that it can fulfill uh, Riley's parole agreement that he will go to AA meetings. And mm. the meetings themselves are, you know, it's just the three people, it's Father Paul and the two of them. Um, but those are wonderful. I mean, if you've ever seen those meetings, if you know anything about them, they are pretty harrowing just in general. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I just, Robert Longstreet is amazing in this. Yeah. I, if anything, that's what, you know, issues with Midnight Mass's story or the structure of it, because it is, as you said, it's a slow burn. Uh, this is a, this is a boiling, bubbling, tipping over kind of, kind of series, right? Like there's, there's not going to be a lot of jolts to keep you interested unless you get engaged with the characters. And, and the fact that a character like Robert Longstreet's character, he's playing Joe Colley, the, the sort of, again, the town drunk, that's a, that's a stereotype character, right? That's a character that needs no, in a story it's, like this, he shouldn't get any screen time. It's like you should see him drinking played for and stumbling comedy. one time. Yeah. But it, it in this one he becomes one of the deepest early characters so that when he is really the first kill you feel it more than anyone else yeah. and it's it's really effective and that's the kind of work that Flanagan's doing with the characters in the show that um makes it effective and and really does keep you engaged even if you're not like into this religious side of things um but so he's fantastic um i, I think that what this show will be remembered for is, is its performances. Yeah. I think that will be, if this doesn't get some pretty significant Emmy nods for, you know, actor, supporting actor, actress, act supporting actress in a drama series, somebody at Netflix is not working hard enough to promote their series. Um, and because Hamish Linklater here is, this is a, this is like, I mean, I don't, I kind of hesitate to use the word tour de force, but you got to remember, this is the dude from new old Christine. Right? Like, like that's, it's that guy. And I mean, it, not that he's, he's done lots of other stuff. That's fantastic. But in terms of like how the typical like TV watching public has engaged with Hamish Linklater's career, this is something else like on an entirely different level for him. And, and excellently. So like he, he definitely deserves it. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited and I hope that this gets him a lot of attention as a dramatic actor or even just as a, as an actor in really what I'm hoping is that he just keeps showing up in Flanagan stuff. Like he's yeah. now one of Flanagan's stable guys, uh, which I have a feeling that he will be because Linklater is, is enough of a sort of chameleon that I think he can kind of, he can kind of do whatever, which is awesome. I mean, he was um, my favorite thing about the show and he wasn't really I mean, he wasn't the only good thing, but he is clearly the best thing about the show. I, I think so. Um, there is a beautiful monologue at the end uh, by Erin Green. Yes. That is delivered while she is dying and staring at the sky as the vampire drains her blood. Uh, and then she totally fucks that vampire over, which is fantastic. Um, but they there was an earlier conversation in the show a sort of pivotal conversation between her and riley that gets we don't really see the entirety of it we kind of unfolds through flashbacks as the series goes on and and what we get is her understanding of death and how she has has reasoned out what death means 
to to her as a person um which basically feels like flanagan just writing his own thoughts on the page just sort of rolling it all out many of it you've heard before many of the ideas are not necessarily original or new but this well, is the first time i've kind of seen them another another cool thing that i i do have to point out about this monologue and those conversations is that he reuses if you pay attention concepts that show up in the other dramatic monologues from Bly Manor and Haunting of Hill House. Yes. Namely again, the are... concept that something is a wish that showed up again, which I thought was just really cool. So there's like a consistency. I mean, these are ideas that he revisits a lot just as a yes. filmmaker because it interests him. Yes. I I think I think what, what Flanagan has done here is is in many ways he's laid himself bare as as a person in in these in these episodes um he's talked about this being extremely personal um his wife has has done interviews basically saying that you know this is very meaningful to him and this is something that these are ideas and and concepts that he's been dealing with and rolling around with for a long time and and i i appreciate that because i think not only does true horror, but true art in film comes from a filmmaker who is, is dealing with, you know, one of my, my very simple mantras for my own creative work is to be vulnerable and to be honest, right? Those are just two things I demand from myself, right? No matter what the artifice is laid plot upon a story or an idea, if it's not vulnerable and it's not honest, it's probably never going to have the ability to connect with a human being in a way that it could. Right. And this of all of Flanagan's work, which I would say on the whole, all of Flanagan's work meets that very simple requirement. It's vulnerable. It's honest. This is the most vulnerable and honest I've seen Mike Flanagan. Um, the, this show feels like he is really putting his ideas about things out into the world without much filter. You know, there's always filter, right? It's a creative work within the. the well, it's about vampires. It is it's about vampires. There's there's some creative license being taken. But there are a lot <laughs> Mike of Flanagan ideas. Mike Flanagan proclaims vampires exist. <laughs> vampires are real, and they might be your priest. Um, but I, I feel like the ideas, the core concepts of this show: someone wrestling with addiction, someone recovering from addiction, someone finding peace in loss, someone struggling with identity, someone who is, is trying to find themselves in the world as a young person, you know, a, a person who wants to reclaim the past and, and fix their problems. Like there are things at the heart of this that are very central to the human experience and feel very, and, and feel like they've been dealt with honestly. And, and I think that's what gives this show legs. Um, Cause if it was just, spooky priest of vampire we've seen that before we've seen it it's it's salem's lot right like we've we've done it um but this is is elevated by those ideas again i i, I hate to use the word literary because it just sounds snobby as shit but this is what literature tries to do and and tries to express in non-vampire ways right if this was a, a literary novel this would just be people like who are struggling with not getting their ideal job and living in South London or something. But this is, is Flanagan who is embedded in horror horror. You can tell is a part of this guy's worldview. Like this is how he thinks. And, and it, and 
he's proven over and over again that he thinks about it very clearly and very and, and very specifically and then wrapping up these very personal ideas in this this sort of palatable vessel and it it works top to bottom like those parts of it like i said i will i will say that this show is slow like if you are not willing to engage with it you will probably be upset it it takes its time it is in no rush to get from point a to point b and it wants you to sort of like meander your way through but if you can hold on the payoffs for that patience are phenomenal right when they revealed that father Paul and the old ass lady who keeps getting younger that he comes to give mass to, they had a secret affair during world war two that created the daughter. I mean, holy shit. And then he basically tells us at the end, the whole reason that he brought the angel back was to regenerate her so that they would have another chance at a life together. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, come on. That's fantastic. And and just comes across so well. And then, you know, he, again, Flanagan subverts and undercuts and does other things with that idea. But like it, it sort of reveals, it lays everything bare. Like he had all these grandiose ideas about saving the town, saving the people, bringing them all joy, bringing them all miracles, blah, blah, blah. But no, it wasn't about that at all. It was about a woman that he loved, that he wanted to be with and never could because of the choices that they both made and him trying to, to right that wrong. And just fucking it up. Yeah. And that's, that is very real. Right. Because if you want something like that, you'll justify it however you want in your mind. And that's exactly what happens. So I, I very satisfied by how Flanagan wraps everything up because the, the ultimate end, (laughs) and this is the part that I was a little bit surprised by So they're on this tiny Island and it's, it's, uh, you know, late spring, I guess, going into summer. <laughs> and like, it's just, there's no water or, or like, you know, it's, it's dry and they just start burning everything because the vampires, the vampires start burning everything because this is how Bev Keen is going to control who gets to be a vampire is there's, she wants to burn all the structures. So this is only one place left to go. The church, uh, like rec center that she built. She's got beds in there for everybody. <laughs> it's so funny, dude. I put beds in there for everybody. It's like, you're all fucking vampires. You don't need beds. Um, but so she, uh, she burns all the buildings so that if they don't like someone who's been turned into a vampire, they can just leave them outside to die in the sun. Yeah. Which is so brutal. And then she's like literally choosing people at the end. And then that all gets upended because the people who haven't turned into vampires, they decide to burn everything else. And so the whole island is on fire. Every building gets burned down in a hilarious series of events. And then all of the vampires basically just stand waiting for the sun to rise. That's going to kill them all. And it's, it's a, it's a great ending. And I knew that they were going to end on nearer my God to thee. I was like, he used it at the beginning. I was like, Oh, they're definitely going to sing nearer my God to thee. And that's exactly what happens. And they just all burn. The music is amazing. I love the music. It's a lot of church music. Like um, it's straight up hymns, played as hymns. They're not, you know, this is not, oh, we're going to bring in the national and we're going to play some hymns. Oh, it <laughs> like was it's fantastic. So, it's just straight hymns, man. So nice to hear those songs not, not made into pop songs, not 
altered in any way, just exactly how you would hear them in a little country church, sometimes with, you know, dramatic flourishes and, and whatnot. But it was it was very nice. Yeah, it's just just really strong. Um, again, a, a very clear vision on the part of Flanagan and his team for what they were going for here. Um, the other thing that has to be noted here is that Flanagan and his brother and a couple other collaborators, but basically Flanagan and his brother wrote every episode and Flanagan directed every episode, which he hadn't even done on the Hill house series. Um, He directed the pinnacle episodes of Hill house um, and several episodes of Bly. Uh, Like the, he did the long take episode, which is still a triumph. This is something he's been trying to make for years and years and years. I mean, this, this was the, the project that he had like a prop book made called Midnight Mass that he would put in all of his movies in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because originally I think he wanted it to be a novel. Like he he conceived it as a novel first. He just thought it would be too big. And then eventually kind of came to it as a TV show, I think is, is what I'd read. So, you know, I can see why why he wouldn't want to to turn it over to anyone else. And I'm th- I think it's ultimately the best that he, he directed the book. Yeah, I I can't really imagine anybody else stepping in and sort of having his particular hand um for the assembly of the episodes. Um I, I think that that unity of of direction is important for this show doing what it needs to do. But um all right, so any anything else you want to talk about? Again, I could talk I could spend a whole episode talking about Rahul Kohli and, and his sort of very quiet and very careful depiction of a Muslim man embedded in a Christian town, a tiny Christian town, uh, the sort of casual racism that he deals with constantly, the and the, sort and of the casual racism effect on his child that he know. dealt with was a, a product of coming right after him dealing with very direct racism. Yeah, from, actual racism, like well, like well, it's all racism. It's all racism, like but work racism, but dealing with like very very direct, very threatening, you know, scary things after nine eleven forced to investigate on Muslim people. Um, yeah. You know, that that character is, is very tragic because it forces you to to acknowledge that people are racist, they are the worst, and that would probably be the, the worst possible situation for for a Muslim person to to be in a very devout, very tight knit and very closed Christian that would be really, really hard. Yeah, I I think it's it's something that needed to be there. It needed to be included because it, you can tell also that Flanagan, in his wrestling with with what religion is and its positives and its negatives, he wanted to have a different perspective on faith and to show that faith can exist outside of the Catholic religion, uh, which is antithetical to what most Catholics are are raised to believe. Um, and I think Flanagan here is just very, very interested in showing that sort of expanded view and expanded understanding of, of religious faith beyond, you know, this, this sort of cult-like behavior, but also just in general, right? That he is a devout man um, in this different religion who is, you know, encourages his son to, to explore and to discover and to try and find truth for himself. And, and, you know, I just, I really, I dug the whole character. Uh, again, I, I could have seen a whole, sh- I could have seen a lot more of him in the show and been very happy about it. Um, you know, in, in terms of what doesn't work in the show, 
I think we've hit most of it, but it's, it's a really, it's a a really solid, it's a really solid slow burn. Like it's bingeable. You know, it's one of those things, just take a, a quiet afternoon, wrap up in a blanket and just, just let it play. Like don't yeah. hit the don't hit the button. I you know? <laughs> I watched it in one go. I just sat down. I mean, yeah. I've been waiting for it to come out. Um, so as soon as it landed, I'm just like, well, I have work to do, but it's not going to get done. I'm watching this now. <laughs> um, watched the whole thing and just kind of couldn't stop. And that's been the effect of all of his television series so far. Um, when Hill House came out, I. I actually had the tip. My spouse turned the television off and said, we are going to bed. You have to go to bed. <laughs> you have a job. And I'm like, but, 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 but I put the TV show. There's only like three episodes left. That's only three hours. I don't need that sleep. That's crazy. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I, I kind of did the same. I, it was two settings for me. I, I couldn't do it all in one just based on when I decided to watch it because I started in like the middle of the week. If I'd done it on a weekend, I would just watch the whole thing. Um, but a similar compulsion. Like I need to, I need to get through this. I need to see what happens, especially once I kind of saw what the show was was gonna do and what it was about. Um, which I will say, there are some dodgy special effects um, or visual effects, I should say, but it's it's really minor, mostly involving the vampire. You know, there's just a couple of shots that uh, you know don't work super well with that. But the practical effect of the vampire, the actual dude in the suit, man, holy cow! What a great practical effect. Um, excellent, excellent visual and, and used super well. Again, I, there's just some, some really great shots in this movie involving that vampire character. And he um, keeps everything, you know, dark, just does as much in darkness as possible. You know, that helps the vampire thing. Um, but it, it's just really smart, you know, trying to hide as many of those seams of maybe the, the weaknesses of those effects. By just keeping it very shrouded in darkness. Yeah, totally. Um, he he, again, Flanagan knows how to to work with what he's got. Um, he's in you know comes from the independent world and and sort of has that scrappiness to his work that is is just so necessary to put together a horror project. I think because um, the moment that horror projects become about throwing money on the screen to solve your problems, you've kind of lost the plot. Uh, at least for me, like generally the ones that try to do that don't. They don't go, don't go anywhere yeah. for me at that point. Um, you know, Freddie V. Jason, you know, didn't do a lot for me. <laughs> it's like, it's fine. It's okay. But uh, I didn't need that. Uh, that one shot in, uh, was it H2O where they had to CG Michael Myers mask because the mask's yeah. so bad in the shot. <laughs> like, it's just that kind of stuff, man. Like, just don't. Just reshoot, reshoot it. Take the money. Um, anyway. All right, so I, I think we've we've expounded upon Midnight Mass. I'm sure it'll be something that we refer to down the road as we talk, not only about future Flanagan projects, but other projects of similar quality. Um, needless to say, I think this is a big recommend from us. Um, definitely for me, I, I would say that's probably from you. I'd, I'd say you probably recommend it even more than I do. Um, sure. I kind of lost my mind about it. I, I just, I'm so excited by everything that he does. Um, you know, it started... Kind of like all of his movies and his series, his career was a bit of a slow boil. You know, if you paid attention to the things that he was doing early on, like Oculus, it it was more of a, 
you you're doing something. You're doing more than other horror filmmakers. And I'm going to find out what it is by just watching and waiting. <laughs> and now the payoff is is immense because, you know, the slow burn has finally erupted into the fire. Yeah, he's finally getting some some really significant attention, uh, even outside of horror circles and, and things like Midnight, Midnight Mass, which kind of strides several different genres. You can get into it, and engage with it, even if you're not a horror fan, even, even though I think that it certainly helps. Um, I, I think that will continue. And uh, so, of course, he's already announced that his next project is a reimagining or, or remake or, or who knows what of um, the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. And it's Poe. it's apparently going to rope in a lot of different Poe stories, which I think will be cool because. Like I said before, you know, he takes these books that don't necessarily seem like they would be very good films or very good TV shows. And he pulls out sort of the core, the interesting stuff, but you know, certainly it's going to be focused on another house, um, which the Usher house is Mm -hmm. iconic. So I I can't wait to see what he does with that. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's going to be this, you know, if midnight mass was his crowning personal project, this may be the one that sort of catapults him even further because uh, Poe is a Poe's an easier connection point than Shirley Jackson or Henry uh, Henry James. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who love Edgar Allan Poe just for Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I've, I've worked with them as, as a literature teacher. Yep. Uh, they just love Poe. Poe heads everywhere, right? Bust. A Poe. lot of them teach Poe. the eighth grade. <laughs> yep. And so he's, he's a, a character that I think could get, get him a lot of attention because it's an easier bit of name recognition for what's being adapted. And if he chooses to build additional Poe stories into the singular sort of encapsulation of Usher, then that could be really, really exciting. Um, and, and again, Flanagan has proven himself to be nothing if not a careful, studious and excellent adapter of other people's material, especially reframing it in a modern context would i have thought to take the story of the turn of the screw and put it in 1980s britain no i would not but flanagan did i'm so happy made it fucking work i'm so happy so so yeah this is gonna be pretty cool i i'm excited to see what he does next and uh more than likely i know we've we've talked about doing dr sleep because unfortunately dr sleep was a huge financial failure um, so we may have some more Flanagan discussion about uh, that film at some point. More talk of Henry Thomas. Future. More talk of Henry Thomas and his incredible turn. Never would have thought of it in a million years, but his incredible turn is Jack Torrance in Dr. Sleep. Uh, Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance, obvious yeah. Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance. Um, but God, I love Mike Flanagan because he didn't like digital anybody's face. God. Oh, so, so good. good. Just Carl Lumley as Scrapman Crothers. That's fine. It's Make good. it work. It's great. Make it work. People will accept uh, it. That girl that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, Esso as, as Wendy. She was great. Perfect. Right. So good. Do do more Flanagan. Do more things. Make more things, please. Uh, and it seems like you will. <laughs> All right. So any other thoughts on Midnight Mass? Um, It was awesome. Go watch it enjoy that's right uh and if you have watched it we hope that you enjoyed our discussion of it and of all things mike flanagan here on our mini flanacast 
Um, but we will see you next time. Uh, if anybody wants to find you on social media, Catherine, to uh, uh, agree with you about how great Mike Flanagan is, <laughs> where can they find you? You can find me heading up my Mike Flanagan fan club at Baskinator on Twitter. That's right. Uh, and you can find me, the vice president of the Mike Flanagan, Flam- uh, Mike Flanagan fan club. Uh, that is, wow, that is a surprising, that's a surprising tongue twister. I'm going to have to work on that one. Mike Flanagan fan club. There we go. Uh, you can find me at T Baskin on Twitter as well. And you can always get us together at F Peace Theater on Twitter, or you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We will see you again soon with another episode of Failure Peace Theater. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.